there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. Today, I'd like to welcome Mark Vogelzang. He is the course director for audio and visual media at the Ontario Institute of Audio Recording Technology. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks. Can you share a little bit about what you do there? Sure. So I take care of all of the audio aspects of uh, anything to do with the moving image. So that has to do with live, like theater uh, aspects of, of sound design, uh, gaming, uh, TV, and film specifically. And we look at uh, all the ways that we can put uh, sound stories together uh, with stuff we're going to talk about today, Foley and music and sound effects. And uh, it takes us a year to get through that, uh, typically around 60 students, and uh, they all go out to the wonderful world of sound and uh, do wonderful things. Yeah, I've heard it's like the Ivy League school for audio <laughs> recording, but, you know, here in Canada, there's really nowhere better to go. Yeah, we take it very seriously. All the instructors at OER uh, take their courses uh, very seriously. And we also do understand that these students have our name on them when they go out, so we're very proud uh, to teach what we teach, and uh, we live vicariously through them as well. Indeed, and I've been to the school, obviously speaking there every year in your class, getting to see the benefit of all the wonderful teaching that you do. And uh, something that always comes across in any of the classes is authenticity. You know, whether they're building sound around an audio play, a drama, something like that, or maybe you're, you're trying to get them to design sound around what they're seeing on the screen, like an animated short. So I really was curious to know, what does it take to create an authentic sound design? It's huge. It's um, something that's becoming actually quite a bit more popular uh, for whatever reason, uh, partially because you, we can do the research much more efficiently. Um, in any production, we really distill it down to uh, three areas, one being the authenticity in uh, historical aspects, uh, uh, two being cultural and geographical authenticity, and uh, one that you guys would know very well is, is branding and genre-based authenticity. And we don't always use all three of those categories in every production that we do, but the evaluation is uh, absolutely massive and integral to really uh, put your hands in the guts of the audience and, and move them the way that it was intended to be moved, uh, starting with the script. Indeed. So if we're to kick it off here, what is the first thing that people should be thinking about? The historical aspect is, is most likely the, the most uh, prominent uh, a part of the authenticity. It's something you really can't get away from. Uh, an example being, you know, the term is, is period pieces. Um, if we're in 1960, uh, we're in a bedroom and there's an individual, you know, listening to music, the authenticity that that song actually existed at that time is, is very, very important, uh, especially if we are in that world uh, with the actor. Uh, meaning that the music is coming from their stereo system. Um, you know, there, there are certain directors, like I'll give you an example, ba Baz Luhrmann uh, with The Great Gatsby, where they have authenticity uh, in the music, but they also start playing very modern songs, which is kind of an interesting blend that's happening. Uh, clothing, shoes, transportation is a massive one that I find um, I grew up on a farm, so I know the difference between a John Deere 4020 diesel engine and a brand new uh, diesel engine. So uh, transportation is a massive part of the historical authenticity. 
and um, right down to, you know, species of, of animals and insects and birds, uh, making sure that we research that they aren't extinct or, you know, what existed in, in this area at, the, at this time and using the internet and places like the Cornell Lab to do the research, you know, the, the locations that they existed at, at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's quite huge. Like there's a, it's, and it's fun. You know, it's, it's always uh, interesting to, uh, at times, book or rent an old, you know, 78 Oldsmobile to sample the doors and the tires and the mufflers and the engines and the clicks and, and, and all, all of that type of thing. So there is a, a world outside of actually editing sound, just the research aspect of the authenticity that you tend to fall in love with. Wow. So when you say there's a research aspect, does that mean that there are people actually on the film crew or or the sound designer, whoever it is, that is actually tasked with finding what that sound would be, the authentic sound, and then tracking it down? Like, I don't know, maybe they have to go in Kijiji or something like this where they're like, how do we even find this? Like, this is obscure. Absolutely. Uh, eBay, Kijiji, Wikipedia, they're all your friend. Um, There's an interesting story about... Uh, David Fincher, he works with an individual called uh, uh, Ren Kleiss. And um, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button is if you haven't listened to that film, you should listen to it for a- for historical aspects. And one example would be how extreme do we, we go with this information. Uh, there's a lot of scenes on porches in that, in that particular film uh, in retirement homes and with elderly individuals. And they had to... Uh, rig up sunglasses uh, with microphones and go into retirement homes to authentically record how elderly interact with each other in that in the south. Uh, they couldn't stage it because human beings don't react when they know the, the same. They know they're being recorded. So the scale of authenticity, historical-wise, you, you can go to great extremes uh, one way, but you're right, sometimes you can't find that piece, you can't find that engine, and you do just have to settle for finding something similar. Mm-hmm. Something close enough, right? Exactly. Something that yeah. is authentic. It, it, you know, like I think there's a story I've heard over time, I can't remember from whom, but it is true. Uh, but someone was looking for this very particular sound from a, a certain species of frog. Now, this frog actually was way over on the other side of the world from where they were. And they kind of had to face the whole, do we travel and spend tens of thousands of dollars trying to capture the sound so it's authentic? Or can we use a species that is nearby that sounds close enough, you know, for this nature documentary? What should we do, right? Absolutely. That's, uh, Planet Earth is a great example of that, where you, you have to draw that line where, do you believe that people, the consumer, will actually know the difference between that real frog and, and something that replaces it. And, and it, that's the genre-based idea of authenticity, where in documentary you are doing a, a lot more research than you are in, say, drama, where drama you can get away with a lot more. If you are actually documenting a species in a, in a certain environment, uh, the authenticity is much greater, the, the value is, is much greater. Uh, there, but something I want to mention in, in that goes into your world. If you can't find uh, a, a specific sound, it's not uncommon to go to a voice actor to see if they can create that sound. I remember working on a, a production where we couldn't get our hands on a, uh, some Clydesdale horses to r- record their vocal aspects. So we were mentioning this, and an individual overheard us in the studio talking about it. 
and they came right up to us and said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at uh, horse sounds. And we stuck a microphone up and sure enough, it was exactly what we were looking for. So we were able to uh, authenticate the voice of the Clydesdales, not through uh, recording it from the Clydesdales, with the Clydesdales, but uh, from a, a voice actor or human being attribute. Well, lots of voice actors do, as you say, have to come up with some kind of creative solution to a sound effect that is, you know, either not there or they can't figure out how to make it. Or um, there's a narrator, Catherine Kelgren, and she had to do an audiobook recording as a narrator, you know, who she's doing all the voice parts, everything surrounding characters that could have been animals or whatnot. But there was one in particular where she actually had to look up how that animal sneezed. Absolutely. You know, and she's like, how am I going to sneeze as this animal? And so she found a sample, basically listened to it on a site, probably like the uh, the archives that we discussed earlier. And she was able to authentically, as best she could, interpret what that was to put it into the character. Absolutely. That's a nice segue into the, the cultural and geographical authenticity. I remember um, because culturally you can have uh, dogs that, mm-hmm. ha- that, that create certain noises and I remember editing this scene where this dog was running with their owner and they stopped at a four-way stop and we it was a dog that was uh, air quotes a house dog versus a sporting dog Mm. but the only recordings we could find was a sporting dog for that specific breed but it was so controlled and uh, like a hunting dog type of thing so we ended up having to go out instead of cutting those in. The authenticity would not work because the breathing of the dog at the stop sign was so controlled like a sporting dog, but this was a house dog. So we had to go out and find a, uh, a more authentic house dog, <laughs> house dog breathing uh, sort of noise. We had, to, we had to go out and get trainers and spend money and, and find the time to record the breathing of a dog so we could authentically create that four-way stop scene with the running the owner and the dog. Is that just like really high standards, Mark, or is this expected <laughs> of everyone? It's not expected of everyone. Um, it depends. You, you get the idea of who you work for. Certain producers will have that conversation up front, how authentic. Um, right now I'm going on to a feature film where the authenticity is the last thing we're thinking about. And then in 2017, I'm, I'm heading out to Belgium to work on a feature film that's absolutely 110% authenticity. So it, it just depends on the production. And it's usually a conversation right up front uh, that you have, because it is a lot of work. It's a lot of extra money and a lot of extra work to be extremely authentic uh, versus you know other ratios that you could have of sometimes authentic and sometimes not. So, But that is a conversation between the uh, producers, uh, director, and the sound team. Yeah, likewise, when you mention culture and geography and kind of location-based uh, authenticity, we also have to remember that the actors, they might have accents or something that is you know related to that area, like the movie Fargo, for instance. You're going to want to have a certain kind of sound. Now, I know that isn't necessarily where your responsibilities would come in as sound designer, but how much attention to detail is paid there from your perspective Dialogue is the aspect, dialects in general, uh, that the consumer will latch onto first, deciding for themselves how authentic or inauthentic it is. And uh, it's an interesting conversation. We could most likely make a whole podcast out of that because there's so much a thought and attention that goes into the dialogue recording. My job would be 
uh, you know, after the dialogue has been recorded on location. There's not much I can say to the actors at the time how authentic their accents are, and sometimes they're very authentic, and mm-hmm. sometimes they're not so authentic. It's more after the fact where something like the automated dialogue or ADR, when we bring the actors back in to re-record, that my evaluation as a supervisor, I have to make sure that they're sticking to the authenticity that they created, whether that's completely authentic or not. So if they have a certain dialect and accent that they've created, even if it's not that authentic, that becomes the new bar of authenticity when you re-record is the actor has to remember my accent existed in that way. And that's sort of my job in the editing part of it is to evaluate that and make sure we don't cut from one scene and it's one accent from Mm -hmm. one actor that was recorded two months ago to the next scene, which was two months later, that the, the slang or the, uh, the dialect doesn't change between those. So that, that's one part of the evaluation. But dialogue in general can ruin that concept of authenticity, can take the audience right out of it immediately, maybe the most sensitive out of all of the, the aspects of sound that we deal with. And that's definitely a casting decision. Like if someone is a director and they've clearly hired people to do something and they want a certain accent or dialect being spoken, then it's really up to them because you can only work with what you're given. Absolutely. That is the it, dialogue's interesting because we it, it's the most controllable aspect of story, storytelling. So I can use the dialogue to tell the most obvious aspect of the story. It's the most sensitive, but it's the least amount of control that I have because all of the decisions previously have been made. Our responsibility up front is just to record it make sure we have the least amount of impeding factors and then all of the other attributes around that so the other sound edit that's where we start looking at how much control do we have over everything else transportation foley atmospheres air tones are very interesting Uh, a really cool story about geographical authenticity i remember looking at a scene in new york around 1930 so between march 1930 and april 1931 And it was a scene in the location where the Empire State Building would have been constructed at that Mm -hmm. time. It wasn't visually there, but you had to remember right at this time in this geographical location, the Empire State Building would have been being constructed. So that clanging that those metallic impacts would have to be in the atmosphere backgrounds edited in there, even though we don't visually see them, they they belong to that culture and that geographical and that historical location. So that's pretty interesting to think about what we visually see in the scene and uh, culturally, geographically, historically, and what we don't see, that we still have to authenticate. And anyone who has, you, you always have to be sensitive to the demographic that's going to consume the, the, the media, things like, were they alive during that time because that's you know how authentic do you you make a scene uh, greatly depends on the demographic that's going to consume it they would they will be the first ones that will contact or email to say this is inauthentic mm-hmm. this is not how it uh, sounded at that time one great film to experience that would be fury uh, where they went to great lengths to sample the tanks and the artillery to know what it was like to feel that whizzing by your head and they had on staff you know individuals that that had experienced that environment to authenticate yes this is how they should be sampled and how they should exist in in the film so uh, that's every sound editor's dream is to have that sort of uh, staff to to confirm 
not always the case, mm -hmm. but um, that's a lot of the design aspect of sound design. It's not always the, f you know, the fun, cool sounds. It's a lot to do with that research. Right. What will set the consumer into this scene uh, at this time? And to have those people who were there, who experienced it themselves, maybe even ran the machines, you know, they have a memory. They have some kind of uh, kind of that sound is rooted somewhere in their minds. They can hear it and they can tell you. And of course, there are going to be times where you're looking so far back that no one knows what this particular uh, thing sounded like. Maybe you reconstruct, you try to look at something, you build it and you make it work. But this just uh, comes to me now. But just thinking about just the art of preserving the sound, because Sometimes something does not exist. They don't use it anymore. And that sound could be lost forever unless someone has documented it somewhere. Absolutely. That, uh, I've become addicted to that. It might be my age. But when I travel, now with technology, I, I can bring a small recorder with a pretty good microphone around with me. And something we've discussed before, that uh, idea of, of extin extinction existing outside of a species uh, one example being the extinction of certain types of engines. I know a type of engine that exists on my parents' farm in Saskatchewan that doesn't exist anymore. It's not being made. It, the engines weren't maintained, so a lot of them just don't run anymore. Uh, and my dad has that engine. I've sampled it many times, this diesel engine. And I know that that engine will be extinct one day. And I have so many recordings <laughs> of <laughs> things like that in my travels where the extinction concept... It, you have to think that it exists outside of the species in being in sound yeah. specifically. And that happens with, uh, well, folk song, anything. I'm just remembering the people going up in the Appalachian Mountains with their wax cylinders, kind of getting down all the stories, all of the, the songs, the, the words that people use in their tunes, the melodies, and, and that the legacy that we have from that. So imagine, you know, 100 years from now, maybe some of those little samplings you put on your, your phone or however you captured them, they could be quite useful to somebody. I had a student ask me that, um, saying, you know, when I go home for Christmas, I really want to record some stuff. Is it okay that I record it on my phone? Because that's all I have right now. The answer is always yes. <laughs> I, if he asked me, can I go home with my wax cylinder? <laughs> I would have said yes, of course. Yes. Go go home and just record anything. Um, because it's it's... I consider it like smell, and you, most sound designers would, that it can conjure up a, a very emotional uh, state when you listen back to recordings. My grandfather uh, on my mom's side was great for that. He recorded us as kids, and I listen back. That's the only recording I have of myself, one single recording at Christmas, and it's so nostalgic. I can hear that TV, that C CRT a TV that he had, the clang. I know the pots in the background. I know those pots that my grandmother had. I know I can hear the footsteps. I can hear that shag carpet, the kids like running around mm -hmm. on the, that type of thing. So uh, it's interesting to consider that extinction outside of uh, species. Yeah, we've been looking at kind of the recent past and maybe people who've been alive and, and remember these things. But then you've got, you know, a film like Lincoln being made. And no one ever heard his voice, who's living now. It was not recorded on anything. But there were, however, 
firsthand accounts of people who knew him who would write down attributes about his voice. And so, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, the actor, was able to take those notes and kind of get an understanding and inform a picture of how this figure was not the Disney version of Abraham Lincoln in the Hall of Presidents with his big booming bass. Like he was literally more of a tenor voice. He he almost sounded whiny to some of his, the people who were not quite fans of his. So whatever we can get from history, what it tells us from these different accounts, be they from someone who was kind of like a friend of somebody or maybe an, an enemy, you know, they're, they're all like accounts that we should be taking into consideration when we're thinking about authenticity. Yeah, Lincoln is a great example, actually. They recorded the room tones in Lincoln's rooms. And I remember having conversations with many people that they felt very uncomfortable because of the authenticity mm. of his voice, which is a whole other thing. Uh, a lot of people don't know that they are uncomfortable with the authentic version rather than the uh, sound designed version. Uh, drum kits in general are that way. When you you uh, stick a microphone in front of a Gretsch old drum kit, everyone likes the name Gretsch. And a lot of students are like, oh, that sounds really dull and and uh, not boombastic like I thought mm. it would be. They're, the they're not happy with the authenticity. Lincoln is a great example if, if any of the listeners haven't watched uh, or listened to Lincoln, uh, it's a great example of going to great lengths to authenticate voices and air tones and any clocks and door handles and that type of thing. That's awesome. Now, I know there are three. We've gotten through yes. one. And to recap, <laughs> the first one was about the historical authenticity. Secondly, we looked at cultural and kind of geographical authenticity. And lastly, we're going to talk about brand. Yes. Branding and genre is... Uh, to me, and I worked on uh, in advertising for a while, and branding and, and genre-based authenticity is extremely difficult because it really first exists as vapor. It's just an idea of, to give you an example, the Duracell battery. You know, it's a, three syllables, uh, Duracell. And if you look back at the old commercials, you know, I can just I can picture those meetings of like what what should that branding sound be at the end of the Duracell commercials? And it's a sequence of three that for the syllables of Duracell. And you know, listening to that Duracell brand sound, it's just three notes. You know, mm -hmm. it's very, very simple, but it's so powerful. And uh, that's the power of branding uh, authenticity with sound that it can be used for other reasons. And a, a great example of that uh, is the Imperial March from, from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So that uh, orchestration, it's a branding of the Imperial Troopers, right? Where you could use that sound uh, in a commercial for the boss walking down the hallway to fire the employee that, you know, and everyone would know, oh, that's the Imperial sound and right. something bad is going to happen. So branding and genre-based authenticity becomes powerful outside of its in first intention, which be would be to represent the brand. Another example would be Jaws, where the dun-dun-dun-dun could be used mm -hmm. anywhere else, uh, culturally, geographically, yeah. to tell a whole wide variety of, of stories. You know, same thing. You, you've got the boss walking down the hallway 
close-up shot of the feet walking, <laughs> you know, very, very fast. You could put Jaws mm-hmm. under there. It's a brand yeah. that exists to be utilized for some something else. You know, the semitones are very powerful. Yes. <laughs> it's just a half step, right? Yeah. It, it's something that is ominous sort of the lurking. And I actually just saw some kind of a video recently where that showed the scene of someone's leg just dangling above the water, you know, oh, just swimming in the water. And, and they don't know the shark's coming, but the audience does. Yes, exactly. From from that branding. The iPhone is an interesting one. Any sort of Apple sounds, uh, you know, if the uh, branding of the possible iPhone or the most popular iPhone ringtone is something that comes into conversation every single scene where an actor interacts with an Apple product is, mm-hmm. well, which one are we going to choose? So the audience knows, and it's, you know, like I can't remember the, there's two names, Marimba or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's yep. so popular <laughs> that everyone chooses that you have that discussion right there and then. Well, well which one do we use? Which is going mm-hmm. to communicate best to this demographic yeah. that's watching? So it's, it's branded to the iPhone that everyone knows when you, you play that sound. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to mention one other thing, too, that's very interesting, because you can brand his- historically. The idea of a phone ring, which was branded into the concept that if a phone rings, every human being that interacted with it knew to stand up, go to that physical device, pick it up, and say something, mm-hmm. right? And then there was the transition from those like the old Bakelite phones, where you could actually change that branding sound to tell you to answer that and the example would be like an mp3 and i remember that transition and so will a lot of the listeners if they're old enough that you'd be standing around a group of people a a very terrible mp3 would start playing (laughs) and someone would wait like 30 seconds and they would pat their side and be right that's my signifying that i should answer the thing that was that new branding of this sound that belongs to this phone now is the cue for me to answer it where before it was the typical ring ring which is you can historically brand that that idea uh which is always interesting and i remember that transition which mm. is always a fun thing too and you can even pick the historical ring yes now for your exactly. ringtone like instead <laughs> exactly, of having yeah. marimba or whatever it might be you know you you've got like ring 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. oh that's a you know it's hilarious because like that has changed the way that we know to pick up a phone has changed but also like even just like saying oh hang up the phone now you say that to someone younger they're like what do you mean hang up the phone there's a lot that kind of in language even that can be authentic to a scene or, or how someone is speaking but just thinking about companies and brands and and just how story and way of knowing you know is this authentic is it not and can we pull on something that comes from that audience at that time just thinking of wally you know how you're talking about the different sounds and what will people relate to every time somebody turns on their mac what happens it makes this glorious kind of sound right there's there's more to it than that but what does wally do when he powers up that sound right yes you yeah. recognize right away it's like oh my gosh like this is apple clearly steve jobs had his fingers in that one you know the pixar and everything and and um his role in that uh but it's just like you have to draw upon kind of connections that people already have in their minds of something that you can be like okay i want to strike this chord i want them to relate to this i want them to think back to this time i want them to remember that smell whatever it is that you have the power through sound to bring them back and to trigger that emotional response absolutely the branding and genre-based category uh pays extra attention to that and i'll give you an example if we watch the series of star wars or uh, star trek 
there's an expectation going into that film, whether the consumer is aware of it or not, that the sound, uh, there's a, a genre-based sound that exists in that sci-fi series. If the authenticity falls short, they will comment yeah. on it. So there's an expectation coming into a genre of sci-fi or Star Wars as an entity or Star Trek that this is what I'm expecting. I'm expecting this huge dynamic range, these massive explosions, these really interesting sounds I've never heard before. And if they fall short, just like branding, if that Duracell ding, 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 whatever it mm -hmm. was, did not communicate to the con the consumer, then ultimately it falls back on the sound uh, teams. Right. So in the case of, say, the Star Wars um, movies, it would be someone like Ben Burt. Would yes. this fall directly on his shoulders? Like, what does that team look like of sound people? And, and how does, um, I guess, that um, hierarchy work? It's changing. Um, I never got brought in on scripts before. So the sound supervisor, which would be, you know, the Ben Burt style thing or sound, sound designer, supervising sound designer, uh, they will be the ideas person or the direct communication with the directors and the producers. So they will be in on all the meetings, the conversations or the vapor. And from there, they will know uh, who the staff, so their their junior sound designers, they will know the sounds that we have to record. They will hire if they don't do it themselves. They will be hiring the sound recordists. They'll know who uh, best layers this as a sound editor. They'll do a lot of it themselves as well. Who experiments the most with, with sound, who is uh, great with synchronization, uh, that type of thing. So someone like Ben Burt will have the ultimate control creative-wise, but his whole team uh, will be on the same page as, as him. And I know Ben Burt has actually been brought in, uh, as well as Randy Tom, to fix films that haven't been working, that are falling short of that authenticity or that genre-based uh, concept. And I believe, if I remember the literature, it was Star Trek, uh, the not the latest Star Trek, but the one previous, where they, they couldn't get it to that genre-based sound and brought in, uh, I believe it was Ben Burt, to get it there to that authenticity concept which you did mm -hmm. no, absolutely you need an expert and yes. that's why we're talking to you today <laughs> right to get an expert opinion in the authenticity of sound and how that really does affect every component every aspect of a production yes here's something i do want to say the research and selection is extremely important but then the concept of getting your research into the scene is something completely different. So I've, uh, a recent film, uh, we were looking at getting certain birds into a forest as an example. So we authenticated the birds. We knew uh, their migratory paths. We knew they would exist at that time in November in that forest. The next thing was, after we had gotten those recordings, authentically placing them in that environment which is referred to as worldizing. So worldizing is the concept of playing back the material in the environment it would actually exist, which is the ultimate rather than synthetically doing it. And that those are the two options with software, getting it into the acoustic value of, of that room or that forest. Uh, the other option is worldizing where we would take, uh, you know, inside of a car or that forest or a room, a, a speaker and play back those samples to make sure it's authentically then placed in that environment acoustically. So there's all these levels uh, once that research is done that you have to look at as well. 
Oh my goodness. Okay. So for those people who are listening right now, Mark, and they want to have amazing sound, they want to do this right. They don't want to mess it up. They don't want someone calling and saying, ah, uh, you know, that scene where you, <laughs> you know, that inconsistency, that whatever I picked up, um, how much of their budget should they be investing in having good sound? That's always the tricky number. Um, it, there is no magic number now. The best thing to do is uh, grab someone for consulting, and which is, as we discussed before, something I really enjoy right now, which is sort of a new uh, part of my job, is to sit down at script. So nothing's been recorded. We haven't been on location yet. To sit down with the producers and directors and go through that script so they understand this is where to save money, this is where to spend money. So it's always based on the authenticity concept because there's such a large scale it could be three thousand dollars it could be eighty thousand dollars to to get a, a same film a similar film to to authenticity so consulting is a, is a big one at script time so not waiting until that dialogue has been recorded on set and then uh, the edit the locked picture occurs and the dialogue editor is done then getting a sound designer on, get them on earlier. And it doesn't, so, you know, it doesn't cost that much more, but in the long run, it's sort of like getting a financial advisor mm -hmm. before you make a big financial decision. Uh, it, it's under the same umbrella as that. So consulting, uh, finding someone to consult on that is huge. And any good, uh, someone with experience can look at a script and flag uh, certain areas that are going to be troublesome uh, or uh, augment your story in a way that maybe you didn't see Previous. Right. Yeah. Because you want to not only tell a good story through sound, but you also want to tell one that people will actually get to hear. Because if you're not adhering to certain standards, even for sound levels or for, you know, any other number of different um, regulations that I'm sure are out there, then you may make this amazing film or production or audio drama or whatever, only to be told, uh oh, go back to the drawing board or we can't use this or sorry, your film is not able to be nominated for this festival. Absolutely. At the Four City Film Festival, that was the speech I did was exactly about that, that, you know, show of hands, how many people uh, have a great story, but it's lying stagnant in the festival market. Uh, what's interesting about that is during that time, the festivals uh, and submissions, and I don't know what the reason is, often they will not communicate back to the uh, submission uh, the content creators that the reason that this did not get in was because of your sound. Oh. The the visual side, the 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 high resolution cameras are much more accessible. So sound sort of you know it's very fun to get the best cameras and, and the best lighting, but to think about sound secondary is where the danger lies. And a lot of the films, I got a lot of phone calls after that where yeah my fi my film is stagnant right now and we don't know why and. I listened to it and something like, you know, it's on average 15 dB out of the loudness standards of the advanced television systems oh, committee. Goodness. So things like that. that And the the producers or directors like, huh, I didn't, right. That's not my job to know that. That's right. why we need sound professionals in, in consulting uh, because that should have been something that shows up previous. And there are, you know, in the last uh, two weeks since then, 10 to 15 calls, 10 to 15 evaluations, and they are all the same. They're very simple fixes, things that could have occurred before the recording that could have saved them the harassment uh, mm -hmm. of uh, having to do it after the fact. Oh, goodness. And it always costs more after it the fact. It always costs 
more. Yeah, when you don't hire a professional, obviously everyone yeah. listening knows that. Um, but just to drive home the point, like obviously there are people like you who who do consult. And I want to make sure that before we're done today, that everyone here knows how they might be able to get a hold of you. Absolutely. My uh, email will be on the OER website. And if you just Google uh, the Ontario Institute of Audio Recording Technology mm -hmm. or O-I-A-R-T, uh, it will come up right away. Or even my name. Um, it will be easy one to find. So. And that's Mark Vogelzang, for yes. anyone who knows. And, <laughs> and your name, actually, we'll end it here, but it's pretty cool because it's all, you know, it's it's about sound, like bird song, right? We were just talking about birds. So. Yes, and I didn't find that out for 20 years. I uh, <laughs> yeah. th That's a really interesting story. I had a fascination with the concept that birds communicate, how they communicated through mm -hmm. song. And uh, we had our windows open on the in the farmhouse all summer. We didn't have air conditioning, so I would just sit in the evening and at night going to bed listening to these birds communicating, thinking, wow, they are communicating through singing to each other. And then 20 years later, I'm on Young Street in Toronto at a, a restaurant, and someone sees my debit card, and they're like, oh, Vogel sang. That means the bird is singing or the bird song. What? Oh. Yeah. How wonderful. Thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't already done so, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, as well as give us a rating. We love hearing from you and gathering your feedback. Once again, I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli, and I hope you can join us for our next Sound Stories podcast.